The following episode contains major plot points of movies. A spoiler warning is advised. This episode also contains topics that may be disturbing for some viewers, so viewer discretion is also advised. Hi everybody and welcome to the Abbey Normal Podcast. How's it going? My name is Colin. And I'm Aaliyah. September 17th episode? Yep. So actually September 17th is my mom's birthday, so happy birthday to my mother. Happy birthday mom. Yep. And then last week was another friend of ours birthday. We celebrated with her the night before. So happy birthday to our friend Marissa. Happy birthday Marissa. Love you. Yep. Actually I love both of them. Yes. So. And then I got a show that day. Last week, or I should say earlier this week, since we posted a little later in the week last week, mm-hmm. we covered the film It Follows, and today we're going to continue the, again, independent movie regime with another independent film. Yeah, I but, actually had a perfect idea for for a independent film, and I had the name, but now I forgot it, but I think I'll come back to you about it, but I think I had an idea which movie I, that I would like to do. Because mm-hmm. of review, especially especially that we're heading towards spooky season, it's a very independent film. I think like it's Lady in White. I'll have to look into that, but but that'd be a good one to do. That would be an interesting one to do. Oh. Anyway, okay. But before we dive into the movie that we will be reviewing this week, I did want to touch base on some things that happened in current events because there are some things that are happening. I wanted to talk about some of those things do involve topics of sexual assault, rape, and possibly murder. So just a trigger warning, we're going to be talking about certain things. First and foremost, I wanted to talk to Colin about the recent ruling of Danny Masterson's sexual assault charges. Oh, yeah. In the past couple weeks, Danny Masterson was found guilty on two counts of sexual assault and forcible rape charges. Yeah. He was given 30 years to life. With a very small chance of parole. Probably not, but it's pretty small. True. There is some controversy surrounding it for for a couple of reasons. One reason being is that former That 70s Show co-stars Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher both wrote letters to the judge in defense of Danny Masterson's credibility as a person. Mm-hmm. With Ashton Kutcher saying things in his letter that Danny that he looked at Danny Masterson as a role model figure, and Mila Kunis said he had he had good character. Now, mm. that is weird to say the least. It is yes. Because what's weird about this is that a while back, when Ashton Kutcher was still married to Demi Moore, they had founded an organization called Thorn that actually worked to prevent and help people who were dealing with sex trafficking and human trafficking issues, right? Survivors mm-hmm. and helping people out of those situations. Yeah. So it's weird that a person like Ashton Kutcher is writing a letter to a judge to defend somebody who's being charged for rape allegations. Yeah. That is very weird. It is very weird and it kind of questions my whole thing about what who like how is Ashton feeling about this whole thing? Yeah, and unfortunately in this situation, they are not the only ones to do so. The actors who played Kitty and Red Foreman also were noted to write letters to the judge defending Masterson, and I don't think I don't know about uh The only what, one who didn't really is Topher. Topher Grace is so for, so far as we know, he's the only one out of the former cast to not defend Danny Masterson. With good reason, because Danny Masterson's former girlfriend, who was with him at the time of 
his working on the show, uh, tweeted and I think posted on her social medias about all the stuff that she claims to know about Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. Because what they think is happening here, what some people are speculating, I should say, is that the reason why Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher did this is that they believe that Danny Masterson, as a Scientologist, has a lot of dirt on the two of them that can really damage their careers. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Which I wonder is if, weird. I wonder if he has a lot of dirt on Kitty and Foreman. Again, again that would be weird. Mm-hmm. What what would they, what could they possibly have to hide that would warrant them doing this some that's r- already hurting their careers? Some really dirty laundry. It's not only hurting their careers as actors and actresses, but it's hurting their as people. As people, yes. Which is not good. So really isn't. this is what we know now. I don't know what more is going to come from this in the future, but that's what we know so far. Mm-hmm. In other news, in SAG-AFTRA writer strike related news, Drew Barrymore posted on her social media earlier this week saying mm-hmm. that she is going back to working on her show I despite did. the fact that her writers are picketing her show outside of the production studio building. I did hear about that. And also the same goes with The View as well. The View, and I believe Jimmy Fallon's show also is on the same boat. And here's the thing. I think it's weird that Drew Barrymore is crossing the picket line in this way. Because a lot of people make a very good point. She comes from a long line of family members who have been actors, who have gone through this sort of situation time and time and time again. Mm -hmm. I don't know what their history in the past strikings were involved in, Mm -hmm. but she's been acting since she was a child. Yeah. It's not hard to assume that when she says, I don't understand the, the limitations of the strike. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you understand... The ins and outs of filmmaking, the ins and outs of production companies and production studios. If you know the ins and outs that go into making a movie and the writing aspect of all this, then you know what's going on. You know what you should not be doing. If you want to show solidarity to those who you have worked with Mm -hmm. and who are working for you, then the best thing in your best interest as a person, again, this is all about your, your character as a person, to not do what you are doing. And another again, other people make a really good point. She has other ways of making money that are not just on the show. She has her own magazine line. She has her own production line, like her own production studios called, I think it's Flower Productions. Oh, okay. And she has her own line of cosmetics. So, again, it's not hard or it's safe to assume that she is doing pretty well as an actress, I don't know, but despite some... despite everything that's going yeah, on with but the... that money can go away quick. It can. I mean, it can. But I'm saying that with with all these other things she's got going on with her name on it, I think the worst thing she can be doing is making that conscious choice as a person to cross the picket line and say, "This is what I'm going to do," and that's again not okay. Yeah, I get that. Now. Again, the, all, all of this to say, it all brings up these conversations again of separating the art from the artist. Because obviously, there's a lot of people, a lot of people who are big fans of that 70s show. And with the recent release of that 90s show from the past year, it's going to be really more 
harmful for these people who are making these very conscious choices to be these people, supporting these people who, for one reason or another, are not either not good people or they're making decisions that are not in good character. Do we stop doing these things because of morality? Or do we just stop doing the things that we're doing, like watching these shows or watching their movies or listening to their music because we don't want to support terrible people? So what do you think, Colin? Because I, I know you are a fan of that 70s show. And I know when you heard about Danny Masterson's allegations in the beginning, you were pretty shocked, right? Yeah, but I mean, I'm not happy for what he did because you shouldn't be doing shit like that. Mm-hmm. And that's why... You know, you do the crime, you pay for it. Right. You know, you pay for the punishment. Mm-hmm. You know? And like like I said, there's a, there's a song that Dee Dee wrote from the Ramones that kind of fits this. Like the title, Let the Punishment Fit the Crime. Mm-hmm. So that's what kind of Danny did. He, he fucked up. And he's going to pay for having jail time. Right. And... You know, that's shit happens and they shouldn't even even be defending him. They shouldn't because he did that shit on himself and they didn't even mention him on the show. And yet they're going to go and still help him by writing letters to the judge on his on his behalf. Right. I mean, I don't know, just something doesn't seem right. And that's why I'm kind of glad Toford was involved in that, like, you know, that parade of people going to the judge about Danny. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm I'm super happy that Topher's not really on his side. Yeah. I mean, I know he's good friends with him and everything, but he's not happy about his, his situation. Well, I don't even think they're good friends from what, like I well, said they, earlier. Well, they were before, before all this. Well, no, I'm saying that from what Danny Masterson's ex-girlfriend said in her Twitter posts, they, Ashton Kutcher and Danny Ma- Masterson weren't nice to Topher on the show. Oh, they weren't? No, they bullied him incessantly. Oh, shit. And to the point where it made Topher miserable just to be on the show. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, so, shit. again, the, the they're already showing their true colors based off of the words of another person who claims to be there. Again, I don't want to take anybody's words with a grain of salt if they really, truly do I mean I thought they were friends. Never mind. I take but, that back everything I said. But, again, I don't know these people. So I don't know who's telling the truth or who isn't. But I do know one thing. Ashton Kutcher, um, I'm trying to remember the specific details. I'm not really good with remembering things. But I know at one point he was connected to a murder of a young woman who he was going to go on a date with. Who, Ashton? Ashton Kutcher, yeah. I can't remember her name. But I, I think it was back in 2011 or 2001. I can't remember. Again, I can't remember the specific details. I need but to say it. It's fine. He was going to go on a date with this girl. He went to her house, tried knocking on the door, couldn't get inside. He assumed that she just wasn't home or sleeping or whatever, and he left. Mm-hmm. Turns out she was actually dead in her home. Oh, shit. And when he found out the next day, he actually went to the police to say, Hey, I was at her house that night, so if you dust for fingerprints and see that my fingerprints were on her doorknob, that's why. It's weird. It is weird. But weird. why? But again, I think again, it's all part of the. It all goes back to what this girl said about Ashton Kutcher and Danny Masterson's friendship. 
if Danny Masterson knows something about that, he should have told somebody. I shouldn't. It shouldn't be something that you hold over somebody's head for a long period of time mm-hmm. as like a get out of jail free card. Like, hey, I need you to do me a favor, or else I'm going to do this. Like that just seems really fucked up to do. Exactly. So, those are the things I wanted to touch up upon. But is there anything you want to say before we go into it? Um. Other than everything you mentioned, and also about my arm and everything, I think everything's fine. Okay. So... But let's go into the movie. Alright, so this week we are going to be talking about Hereditary. Yep, great fucking movie. Yeah, I guess so. I love it. Uh, Yeah, good for you. It's (laughs) it's so depressing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It's so grief-strucken. Mm-hmm. Or grief-stricken. Right. Yes, but, uh, yeah... Um, all right, so you say your spiel. Before we go into it, though, I'm going to give another trigger warning. Because this movie deals with familial trauma, grief and loss, and especially the loss of a child. So if those things are not your cup of tea, I would encourage you to back out now. But again, if, this is, if you're okay with it, proceed with caution just so you know. This is a movie directed by Ari Aster, who I am not a fan of. You love okay. his films. What are you talking Shut about? the fuck up, you <laughs> troll. Shut up, because you don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, I watched Hereditary after I watched Midsummer, And I know this is his first, this is his feature debut, which means this is the first film he's directed. And I kind of wish I had watched this movie before I got a chance to watch Midsummer because I will give Colin credit. This is a good movie. It's better than Midsummer, and it, I, I haven't seen Bo is Afraid, so I don't know how well or badly... I want to see that movie. I don't know how bad or well written it is. I've heard from people that it is way out there, which doesn't give me any comfort. Other than it's way out there. It doesn't give me any sort of comfort at all, but anyway. You're like, you're not helping me, man. But Hereditary was released on June 8th of 2018 and has a runtime of two hours and seven minutes. That's way too fucking long. Okay. Eh, Is it though? It is. It's too long. Anything over an hour and 40 minutes is too fucking long. Okay. Well, Marvel movies are usually over two hours, but it depends. And I don't like Marvel either. Okay. But here we are. I thought you do. Shut up. Why are you trolling me today? I'm not. Why are you trolling me today? What are you talking about? We had three appointments today. Again, we're recording this during a weekday. I had a dentist appointment at 9.45. Just did that. You had an appointment at 11.45. And then I And then you had your orthopedic appointment Baby. at noon. Baby. What? At noon. It was at, 12, at 2. 2. Whatever the fuck it was. Honey. The point is you're being very salty today. Honey. And you're trolling me. Anyway. Ow. <laughs> like I said, it was directed by Ari Aster. It was his feature debut. And it was produced by Kevin Frakes, Lars Nunson, Buddy Patrick. And it was produced also by A24, Palm Star Media, Finch Entertainment, and Windy Hill Pictures, which are all independent film productions. The film was shot in 32 days. That's amazing. Yep. That took that long just to do it. But here's the thing. That's just filming. Okay? Apparently, it took Ari Aster two years of preparations. Not one year, but get, two years. To get everything together before he can actually start filming. 
I didn't put it down in my notes, but I read in one of the like behind the scenes facts of this movie that Tony Collette said he's the most prepared director she's ever worked with. And I will give him that. When you when you direct a movie, you want to do everything right. Ari Aster, before he was a director, was a screenplay writer, and he'd written a couple other independent films before he became a director. So this was something that he wanted to work on for a while. And with Hereditary, Ari Aster wanted to, quote, make a film about suffering that took suffering seriously, end quote. He wanted any effect that could be done practically to be done that way instead of in Mm post-production. Aster wanted to go for scares that were emotionally justified rather than solely leaning on traditional horror jump scares. Now listen, I know jump scares are an overplayed trope in horror. Very much so. But I'm a very jumpy person, so I thrive on jump scares. I don't mind jump scares as long as they're done tastefully and creatively. Okay? There's a lot of movies that do it. Are you good, Bowie? You good? You got another one left? Bowie's got his sneezes today, so he's sneezing up a storm in here. So... He's a very prepared person. For the most part, this movie doesn't entirely rely on jump scares. I think for the most part, it relies on grotesque imagery. Would you say? It does. Because a lot of this film really kind of bases around the occult mm-hmm. and stuff. Especially with the grandmother. Mm-hmm. Because she was apparently like a leader of a, of a cult. Yeah, but I'm talking about like imagery. Like well, what what aspects of this movie would you consider to be horrifying? <laughs> Um, there is blood involved. There is the naked bodies. Uh, Again, grotesque imagery, but well, okay. And also things of um, accidents that happen in the movie, mm-hmm. especially with the sister, yep. which is very upsetting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's funny because they kind of show like before the incident happens, they kind of show what's going to be in in later. They right. show like the foreshadowing. Yeah, it's foreshadowing. They do a lot of that in this movie too, a lot of foreshadowing. Very much so. Production designer Grace Yoon did research on pagan cults and rituals to prepare for designing the sets. Mm-hmm. Many of the cast and crew view the film as a family drama more than a horror movie. Had this remained a family drama, Midsummer, which was released the following year, would have been his first horror film. Like he had initially intended it to be. But hey. Listen. Can I say something? If if the whole world, okay, looks at this. If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and walks like a duck, it's a fucking family drama, okay? And that's what a lot of people feel like when they see this movie. They don't see it as... A horror film. They either categorize it as either a psychological thriller or an occult horror or a family drama or a drama something. But they never put the word horror. It Like, anytime I've asked people about Ari Aster's movies, including Midsummer, they're like, oh, it's a psychological thriller. I'm like, no. And they're like, what do you mean, no? I'm like, if you Google it, apparently Ari Aster likes to... Credit this movie as a drama horror or a horror drama, but not a fucking psychological thriller. And they and they're confused because they're like, "Where's the horror in it?" And they're again, I will give it that there are some grotesque imagery in there that gives it a horror touch. 
But for the most part, the themes of this movie surround family drama issues. Which is why a lot of people assume that some of his movies are drama based. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I feel that way. And plus also, isn't like family dramas are basically horror movies anyway? Especially Mm. how how bad the family drama can be. Because there's a lot of, like, terrible family drama issues. And it can be horrifying. My thing is, is that there are dramas, right? Mm-hmm. There are tragedies. And there are movies that can be categorized as family dramas. But they have to be family drama-based. Meaning they can't have any other underlying themes in it to drive it in another subgenre direction with this with this movie or i shouldn't say this movie in particular but with with horror genres as a whole you can incorporate family issues into horror films or psychological thriller tropes but when you focus primarily on one thing more than the other Mm -hmm. that's why people tend to look at them and think it's a family drama yeah it's it's like we it's like when we talked about horror comedies. If you put if you apply more of one thing than the other thing, then you're just gonna get one out of the other. Mm-hmm. Like if you know you have to have a perfect balance. I think this movie does enough of it, but I think at the end of the day, a majority of audiences and critics saw this as a family drama rather than a horror film. Mm-hmm. So, the movie stars Tony Collette as Annie Graham. Gabriel Bryan as Steve Graham, Alex Wolfe as Peter Graham, Millie Shapiro as Charlie Graham, and this was her feature film debut, Anne Dowd as Joan. Anne Dowd was in The Handmaid's Tale, and she's been in a a bunch of other movies before this one. And before casting even started, Toni Collette didn't want to do any more dark films and only wanted to do comedies. However, she loved the script so much, she couldn't turn it down. And before this, she had done other, like, dark comedy movies like Krampus and what was the other one you and I talked about? The Fright Night remake? Yeah, which I actually loved her in that one. I think she was great. Right. So... Those, after she did those movies, she kind of considered them, like I said, she considered them to be dark comedies because they're they're mostly comedic movies with some dark undertones, like we said. And Ari Aster requested that Alex Wolf and Millie Shapiro go out to eat in character a few times and they would sit up for up to three hours in silence while Millie wouldn't speak and Alex would try to get her to talk to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot like... I don't want to say that's like method, but that's definitely like getting to know your co-stars, you know? And that really is something that happens a lot throughout this film. I get the feeling that with these two, the dynamic is not just, oh, well, they're brother and sister. To Peter, it's, I'm your brother, you're my sister, and I'm just here to make sure you don't get into trouble. Or And I feel like that's just it. You know, Peter's just there. He's the kid who doesn't get into trouble. He's the one that his parents don't really tend to worry about. But they worry more about Charlie. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, something's going on with Charlie. She doesn't act like a normal kid. But, again, what kid is normal? Yeah, it's not normal. Right. And when we get into the plot, we'll find out why that is. But the producers said that it worked out well that Gabriel Bryan and Alex Wolfe had worked together prior to this film. 
and Alex and Millie Shapiro knew each other from school because it made Tony Collette the outsider, which mirrored Annie's character and feelings of alienation within her own family, which is mm-hmm. true. I think these are these are very smart, creative decisions, which, again, I will give Ari Aster and his team that. But I think, again, when categorizing this movie as one genre over another, it didn't hit the mark. Yeah. But... I digress. Is there anything you want to point out before we get into the plot? Um, no, I think... Yeah, let's go into the plot. Yeah, this was the majority of my behind-the-scenes facts. And I do have a few more pepper throughout the plot, which we'll get into, but we'll get into the plot. So, Annie Graham is a miniature artist who lives with her family. Husband Steve, 16-year-old son Peter, and 13-year-old daughter Charlie. At the funeral of Annie's reserved mother, Ellen, she is amazed at the number of mourners present. Annie secretly frequents grief support groups and reveals her troubled childhood and a time where she and her mother had a difficult relationship. After Charlie was born, Ellen became a significant figure in raising her. During that time, Steve receives a phone call from the cemetery telling him that grave robbers desecrated Ellen's gravesite. Steve does not disclose this with anyone. Oh. Mm-hmm. I don't know if at any point in the plot this movie discloses where it's located, but it's shot in Utah. And Ari Aster liked Utah for filming because he thought that mountains were beautiful and breathtaking, but also menacing and ominous. Would you say so? I think so. I'd say, because when we see the house shots, like, outside, they're very beautiful. They're surrounded by trees, and they almost feel isolated. But it also can look terrifying, especially at night. That's the point. I think that's the thing, too. Because, again, if you look at the scenes of the house from the outside, there's all these trees surrounding it, and there's no other neighbors nearby. It almost feels incredibly isolated. Yeah. Which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And the house was constructed completely on sets on a soundstage in Utah in order for... In order to follow Ari Aster's shot list, they needed to be able to remove walls and ceilings in order to shoot the rooms to look exactly like the miniatures. Steve Newburn put the miniatures together. Now, you like the miniature aspect. Oh, yeah, because I've always liked like miniature stuff like houses and like schools and what they can do and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like how, like, I've always been into that stuff since I was a kid. Right. I always like dollhouses. I mean, it's not... It's not in the feminine way or any way, but it's just like growing up as a kid when you see miniatures, they always just look so cool. Yeah, and the miniatures not only help foreshadow like what's to happen, but they also tell us a story of what has already happened mm-hmm. from this point before. Pretty much. And it's very interesting, and a lot of people have said that they feel like there's certain aspects of the movies that are their own characters. Like this, the score, for example, is its own character. The miniatures themselves are their own characters because they're telling the story of Annie and her mother's relationship. They're also telling the story of Ellen and Charlie's relationship. And it's very interesting to see all of this take place in miniatures that Annie is creating. So now we're not only getting a story, we're getting a story from a very specific perspective. Pretty much. And Annie Graham, again, played by Tony Collette, had said at one point in in her grief counseling scene that her mother had disassociative identity disorder, a a condition in which the theme of Colette's Showtime series, The United States of Terra, revolved around. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was interesting. Mm. 
So to continue, when Peter is invited to a party, Annie insists that he bring Charlie with him. On their way to the party and unbeknownst to the pair, they passed a telephone pole with an occult sigil engraved on it. Peter leaves Charlie alone after arriving where she eats some chocolate cake. She's unaware, however, that the cake has walnuts in it and starts to experience a severe nut allergy attack and begins to go into anaphylactic shock. As Peter rushes Charlie to the hospital and on the way, she leans her head out the window for air. As Peter swerves to avoid a dead deer lying on the road, she is decapitated by the telephone pole seen earlier. Peter drives home in shock and leaves Charlie's headless body in the back seat of the car. Annie discovers her body the next day. Following Charlie's passing, Annie becomes resentful towards Peter, who drifts through life in a daze, and Steve tries to get through life as normal. So there's... It's kind of hard to do that, especially when something that big happens and a death in the family. Exactly. And when you are the parent... I mean, I think Annie grieves in a way that most parents would grieve if it was their child. Pretty much. But Steve trying to get through life as if it were normal. That's hard. You can't do that. It's weird and it's hard, but at the same time, everybody grieves differently. So if if you were to look at this from the outside, looking inward, yeah, it looks weird that a guy like Steve is just... Being chill about it. Like, my daughter died, but life goes on. But that's weird. I mean... It's weird behavior. I mean, I'd be kind of different about that. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. be really cool about it. I'd be kind of, like, really mourning bad. Yeah, but again... grieving harder than he probably would. Again, it's all about the grieving process. Everybody grieves differently in their own way. And everybody goes through all... Is it five or seven stages of grief? I can't remember. Five stages of grief. Yeah, there's like a five stages of grief process that people generally go through when they lose a loved one. And Annie does this clearly, and Peter is just in a daze. Again, he's in shock. He feels responsible for what happened, and he's bitter about it because he plays over the the, the moment over and over and over again. And he probably thinks to himself that if I had not taken Charlie to that party, she would oh, still be alive. Honey, it's seven. So it's the seven stages of grief. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I checked right. it because I want to make sure that I was I, I had that corrected. Okay. So, like I said, everybody in this family grieves differently. And Ellen is not there. And she was the closest person to Charlie. And I think what's so interesting, too, especially in, from Annie's perspective, she lost her mother earlier. And she even has this moment where... She, she's in the car leaving for the funeral. She's at the funeral giving her eulogy. And she comes home and she's like, should I be sadder? She's like, I feel like I should be more sad about it, but I'm not. Again, it's a little unfamiliar, but it happens. Especially given, again, the history between Annie and her mother. Which I don't think they include it in this description here. But essentially to kind of give you guys a bit of a rundown of what the history was. So Annie and her mother, well, her mother Helen had Annie and her brother. I don't remember the brother's name specifically, but she said her brother committed suicide when he was a young adult. Mm-hmm. And in his note, he blamed his mother for, quote, putting all these bodies or souls in his in his body. Damn. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot to take in. But she, she chalked it up to schizophrenia. Little do we know, 
it's actually part of all this bigger stuff that's going on in the plot. To move on though, because of this, it really put a wedge in her relationship with her own mother, who, again, she felt like was a very private and reserved person. And so when she got pregnant with Peter, her mother was very, very, very adamant about making sure that she kept this baby. She went through extreme lengths to make sure that Annie didn't try to abort Peter or lose the pregnancy or do all the things that she wanted Annie to do to make sure that she had a healthy boy, right? Right. But she managed Annie manages to get out of that life, out of her household, and to be with Steve, and then to move on with her life and have Charlie. It isn't until she gets pregnant with Charlie that she starts to mend her relationship with her mother. And that's when Charlie is born, Ellen becomes a part of the family now, and she becomes, again, the parental figure to Charlie. And again, it's not mentioned here in, in, this, in this rundown, but after Ellen's funeral, Charlie and Annie have this moment in Charlie's room where Charlie is clearly upset over the loss of her grandmother. And she says, who's going to take care of me now? And he's like, well, hello. She's like, I'm going to take care of you. I'm your mom. Like, that's what I'm supposed to do. Like, I'm your parent. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, what if you die? And she's like, well, then your dad or your Peter or your brother Peter will take care of you. And she doesn't seem to, like, wholeheartedly trust in that, you know. Mm-hmm. And again, it all it's all part of a bigger plan. I get it, yeah. Yeah. She also says something to Annie that throws a lot of people off, Annie included. But she also says to Annie that Grandma had told her that she wished she were a boy. And that's weird, But at the same time, when we get towards the end of the plot, it's going to make sense, right? So, around an hour and six minutes, um, and I don't know if this happens before or after this point in the movie, but to make the chalkboard right on itself, the special effects team put a magnet in the chalk and put a magnet on the other side of the chalkboard to make the chalk move. It was very difficult to get a small magnet inside the chalk and make it write smoothly. But ironically enough, this same tactic was used in the film version of Matilda. And Millie Shapiro, who plays Charlie, starred as Matilda in the Broadway musical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, before we get back into the plot, there's two scenes I want to talk about. Because they're very, very important scenes that show just how strained... Annie's relationship with Peter is. Because like I said, Annie doesn't really have solid relationships with people in her life. She has a very strained relationship with her mother. She has a very unforthcoming relationship with her husband. She's not that close with Peter and she feels disconnected from Charlie. Like she loves Charlie, but she doesn't feel like Charlie wants to connect with her. Mm -hmm. There's two scenes that are very important I wanted to talk about. One of them is this dream sequence we get. And Annie mentions this happening in her grief counseling group. But she mentions this moment in her life where she was so overcome with postpartum depression after having Peter that she would have these visions or these hallucinations of dousing herself and the kids with paint thinner and setting themselves on fire. Mm. And it's it's a very intense thing to not only have to admit to a group of strangers, but it's a very intense thing to have to relive as a parent. But it, there's a scene that happens like this, and it's a dream sequence, so it doesn't actually happen like 
to the characters themselves. There's a dream that Annie has where she's talking to Peter in his bedroom and she's openly admitting that she never wanted to have him as a child. That she was she got pregnant young and her mother made her keep the pregnancy and no matter how many times she tried to abort him, her mother would not let her. But then everything changed after he was born and she still loves him and he gets so upset. And then as the conversation builds and builds and builds, you start to see that they're getting wet with stuff. Yeah. And that by the end of the scene, you realize it's paint thinner. Yeah. And, and, it, and then they... Flames come Yeah. Up. Flames come up and they become engulfed and then she wakes up from her dream. Yeah. The second scene, and it's the most iconic scene, and it's probably a scene that even if you haven't watched the film, you know this scene. But it's the dinner scene after Charlie's funeral. Yeah, where they're uh, yelling at each other. Well, they're having dinner. And again, Steve's just trying to keep conversations flowing normally, trying to have a civil conversation with his wife and his son, who at this point are clashing because she blames him for Charlie's death and he blames her for Charlie's death. And he starts goading her by saying, why did you make me take her when she clearly didn't want to go? And he starts kind of like insinuating this bad parent accusation towards her. And I think he swears at her or says something like, you're such a bad fucking parent or something. And then she flips and she goes into this huge rant at Peter saying, don't you ever talk to me that way, you little shit. I am your mother. Like she pops off. It's an incredible scene. But I feel like it's one that's very telling of her character because between the loss of her mother where she didn't grieve, between the loss of her child, where she heavily grieved over. Her whole journey in this movie has been up and down and up and down and up and down. And it just gets worse as the movie goes on. She unhashes to Peter. Like, I know it was an accident and I know you're upset, but that does not give you an excuse to treat me or your father this way. And we are hurting just as much as you are hurting about this. It's a very, very powerful scene. And I really, really love Toni Collette for that. Yeah. And she is a great dramatic actress also. Yeah. I feel like she, I don't want to say she carried the movie, but she really carried the movie with her performance. Anyway, at a grief counseling group, Annie befriends a member named Joan who teaches Annie how to conduct seances to speak with Charlie's ghost. Later that night, Annie encourages her family to participate in the seance. Annie provides Charlie's belongings for the ritual, which begins to be thrown, which begins to get thrown around the room and terrifies Peter. Annie becomes possessed and speaks in Charlie's voice until Steve severs the connection by throwing water on her. I thought that part was funny. It was weird. It was weird. It was weird. Afterwards, and I think also, too, the demonstration that Joan shows Annie is where we see that chalkboard scene with the chalk writing itself on the chalkboard. I think Mm. that's where they use that tactic on. Afterwards, Peter becomes haunted by supernatural forces while Annie suspects Charlie's spirit has become dark and evil. But it's not. Uh, I mean, it is dark and evil, but it's not Charlie. See, I don't know. It's hard to tell with these movies sometimes what's going on, but... Even I know it's not Charlie. True. I mean, yeah, true. Yeah. And actually, when we get into why that might be, we'll probably get into that a little bit. But 
To continue, when Annie sees drawings appear in Charlie's sketchbook threatening Peter, she throws the book into the fireplace. However, her clothing begins to burn at the same time as the book does, and her clothes stop burning once she pulls the book out of the flames. Annie rummages through her mother's belongings and discovers a photo album that contains pictures of Ellen as Queen Lee, the leader of a coven, with Joan as one of her acolytes. Another book describes the demon king Payman, who wishes to inhabit the body of a male host. Annie ventures into the attic only to find Ellen's decapitated body surrounded by a cultist's ruins. Or runes. Mm. They're like sigils and markings. While Peter is at school, Joan attempts to expel his soul from his body for Paymon. In class, Peter is possessed by an unseen force and slams his head against a desk and breaks his nose. Annie reveals her findings to Steve and tries to explain her connection to Charlie's sketchbook and begs him to burn it. When he refuses, she takes the book and flings it into the fire only for Steve to burst into flames instead. Annie is horrified for a moment until Paymon possesses her. What do you want? I gotta say it like that. Alright, but anyway. Well, you were tapping me on the shoulder while I was reading. What well, do you I'm want? I'm trying to get your attention. Anyway, my favorite scene, actually, in when he's in the class, is when he <laughs> sees himself in the reflection, and he's, like, smiling. His, his reflection smiling at him. Yeah, it's like an evil grin or a smirk. I love that. That was and I think, perfect. And I think that is Paymon. Because here's the yeah, thing. it is Paymon. Here's the thing. And I don't know like exactly how to how to how to dissect this because this movie was so all over the place and I get that like chaos is a good way to cause distortion to the audience it's to true. to throw them off the track of what's really happening here. Mm-hmm. But I've watched this movie 3 times now and I still cannot tell you exactly what is going on with all this. All I know is that this cult specifically believes and worships this demon king. Mm-hmm. Specifically, Paimon, who is said to believe one of the eight kings of hell, right? That's what yeah. Joan says at the end. Yeah. And their whole mission is to bring King Paimon to the world, to our world, to Earth. And the only way he can do that is if he possesses somebody who is male and a healthy body, Right. Ellen latched on to Charlie because she couldn't form that bond or connection with Peter like she wanted, right? Yeah. Like I said, I believe Ellen did the same thing to Annie's brother when she was a kid, and that's why he wasn't the healthy male body that they needed to bring King Paimon to the world, right? Mm-hmm. So she wanted Annie to produce a male son or child so she can... Bring King Paimon into the world through her grandchildren. She, cu- she couldn't do it with Peter because Annie managed to leave that situation before she can let it happen, unbeknownst to Annie. But when Charlie was born, Ellen thinks, I might be able to have a chance with this grandchild. But then Charlie's born a girl. And while that isn't exactly the ideal scenario here, Ellen still develops a connection and a bond with Charlie. That's why she says that what Ellen told her, Ellen told Charlie. You were her favorite. No, I wish you had been a boy. Ah. Uh, 
Yeah. Which is, again, it's a very messed up thing to say to a child. Especially mm-hmm. one who doesn't understand the context here. Exactly. Even even if there's context, oh, I wish you were a healthy boy so I can let, allow a demon to possess your body. That's still not an okay thing to do or say to a child. But I digress. So I think what she was hoping for was to have somebody as willing as Charlie to be able to allow themselves to be possessed by King Paimon. And I think that that's why they're doing what they're doing in in such a weird fucking way, okay? Mm-hmm. So let me, let me get back into the story and then we'll dissect a little bit more at the end. But anyway, as naked coven members gather around the house, Peter wakes at night and finds his father's charred body, then notices a coven member in a nearby doorway. He's naked. And a possessed Annie begins to chase him through the house. He attempts to hide in the attic, but Annie follows him and then beheads herself with a piece of piano wire. It's a very unsettling moment. Uh, because she's, is, she's making yeah. eye contact at him the entire time she's like sawing her head I, off. Hey son, look at me. <laughs> right. Peter jumps out the attic window to get away from more coven members. They're kind of like lurking in the shadows of the attic space. Mm-hmm. A glowing orb enters and reanimates his body. Peter starts displaying Charlie's mannerisms and follows Annie's floating headless corpse into the treehouse, where Joan and other members, as well as the headless corpses of Annie and Ellen, are worshipping a mannequin with Charlie's crowned severed head placed on it. I don't know if you caught that. Did you notice oh, yeah. that? Oh, yeah, that's right. That, that I thought that head looked fucking weird. Yeah, because it's Charlie's head. <laughs> it's Charlie's ant-covered head from the accident. It's so fucking gross. nuts. Anyway, Joan removes the crown and places it on Peter's head, address- addressing him as Charlie. She then proclaims that Charlie is Paymon and they have, quote, corrected his female body and given him his preferred male host. And the coven hail Peter as King Paimon. So again, this is what I think happened, okay? I think in some way, Ellen had Charlie be Paimon or, or become possessed by Paimon for a while. Mm-hmm. I think that's why her connection with Ellen is so much stronger than her connection with Annie. Yeah. Because there's, there's a part of Charlie as Paimon that recognizes Ellen as Queen Lee, his caregiver, his protector, his yeah. guardian and whatever. And now that she's gone and no longer of this mortal, mortal coil, he doesn't know what to do. Yeah. So they're like, okay, we got to get you a male, male host, yeah. which is what you need. Yeah, so, so I think yeah. I think at this point Paymon and Charlie are sort of one in the same or at least tethered to each other in a way. Well he has been for years. That's why she does that clucking thing. But I think also too, it explains a lot of what's happening because Annie doesn't start getting into seances until she meets Joan. And I think what Joan <laughs> taught her was not only about seances, I think she taught her a way to summon Paymon and allow him to infiltrate her household. In a way. Yeah. And to, get, to, get closer, to get closer to Peter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's when hell breaks loose. It does. Because now she's got all this stuff happening. You know, she's finding all these things about her mother. And she believes that she has unlocked something 
terrible, but she also believes that she's the only one who can stop it. And unfortunately, she's not. And she can't. She yeah. can't. So at this point, you're too far gone. You're past the point of no return, and there's nothing you can do about the situation except to just let it roll. Yeah, the restaurant closed. You can't go in. Mm-hmm. You, you cannot go home, but you cannot stay here sort of situation. Yep, goodbye. Mm-hmm. Right. So now that Peter, I think when he threw himself out the window, he essentially killed off his soul. Mm-hmm. And this allowed Charlie slash Paymon to possess his body and, again, become the host that they needed to be able to walk this earth. Right? Yeah. Actually, according to Alex Wolf, the original cut of the film could have been easily pushed over three hours. And the cut footage mostly consisted of more family dialogue. Like, we needed more of that already. Mm -hmm. I think that what we had enough was enough. I mean, granted, it didn't explain everything we needed to know about these people. But I think, again, the miniatures alone told a pretty good enough backstory. And then, again, that was another thing Ari Aster had prepared for when he wrote this when he wrote the screenplay for this movie he had conducted very detailed backstories for all of these characters yeah yeah and again i think the miniatures show those things pretty well what do you think yeah no i agree with you on that for sure Mm -hmm. and it's just like this whole telling even like the larger you know the larger picture here besides the family and having their issues the larger picture behind it is much more crazier Mm -hmm. and that's why i enjoy this movie so much because it just has so many different (laughs) things with it you know there's so much there's grief there's violence there's cult there is this there's horror especially and sadness and Mm -hmm. it's just a it's just a terrifying movie because it just could seem so real Right, and I think again, it it really helps to to have that that sense of alienation from Annie from all the other cast members because, again, she feels so disconnected from everybody around her because they're all grieving differently between these two different people, mm-hmm. her mother and her daughter. Yeah, and I think if you cannot grieve with other people on the same level, it makes you feel more isolated and alone. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, which can be very, very, ter- like, troubling. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm really sorry to say this last part, and it bothers me to no end. And I don't, because I don't know when this factoid was put onto IMDb for this movie. But it's been said that Ari Aster has ten screenplays written he hopes to direct over the course of his career. He's already put out three movies. Yeah, like, The Witch. No. Not, no, that's not him. Sorry. I think I said that Heredit- before. Hereditary was his first film. Yeah. Midsommar was his second film. Midsommar. And then he just released Bo is Afraid earlier this year. Which means we have seven more garbage films to get through before he finally calls it quits on directing. Do you think he'll, like, those going to be, like, his only films? <sighs> I don't care. You know, like, I, again, <laughs> I, here's the thing. Colin, I'm glad you liked this movie. I honestly only wanted to cover this just to make you happy. Hey, 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 hey. You could have said no. I didn't want you to force you to do this. I know, but I I don't want to have to be the only person who makes these sort of decisions. So I figured if I at least chose a movie that I knew that you liked or loved, that you would be happy. I mean, I like this movie. I don't love it, but I do like it. 
Yeah, you liked it enough to be excited about me talking about it, so I figured we'd talk about it. Yeah, plus we recently watched it, so... Yeah, so I thought it would be nice to to talk about it. I, I mean, again, I think it's better than his other film, Midsommar. I love that movie. I think that there are some issues. Uh, there's a couple of issues I have with it, but I think the way that he prepared for it, especially as his first film was really good. And I think at the time of its release, this was like the third or fourth film that A24 put out that was sort of like a box office hit. I mean, you had The Witch. Mm-hmm. And then there was one other film I can't remember. Witch. He didn't direct The Witch. No, he didn't, but A24 put out oh, The yeah, Witch. Oh, right. yeah, that's yeah, yeah. He, They put out The Witch, and they put out another movie, and then they put out Midsummer. It was one of their highest grossing films. Actually, out of all the A24 films, The Witch is my favorite. Okay. That's that one's like the best, and it's not not even an Ari Aster film, so it's like incredibly good. Yeah, I love it, especially when it's like witchcraft and like shit like that, especially in that time, like folk horror stuff. I love that. Yeah, I know Ty West doesn't like Ty West has put out movies, <sighs> but a couple that I, a couple movies that I know of that he's put out with A twenty four were X and Pearl. I have to see some of his other movies, but I thought X and Pearl were really good. And I'm really looking forward to Maxine when it comes out. But yeah, I think it's a very... Hereditary was a very interesting film that was well put together. And I will give Ari Aster kudos for it Mm. because... I mean, you didn't like it, but you didn't like. It was like in the middle. I didn't like it and I didn't love it, but it was not bad. That should be on a (laughs) t-shirt. Just make a Abby Normal t-shirt that be saying Abby, that. Yeah, put put Abby Normal podcast on the back. And then the front be like, I didn't like it. And I didn't love it. But it was not bad. And then put my little name on the bottom. It's like a quote. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you think this covers it? I think we... Well, I have talked enough about this movie. Do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Let's see, not entirely. Other than I just watched uh, Lady in White recently. That was pretty good. Well, other than that, I think we're all set here. Yep. Thank you all for listening to the Abbey Normal Podcast, where you get all your spooky information and stuff from. And, yeah. And we'll be keeping posting more stuff, especially for the uh, October coming in. I know we're going to definitely come up with some fun stuff, because I want to do that. I think next week we should do a foreign film. We'll talk about it. We should do a foreign film next week. We'll th- yeah, we'll talk about it. We either do a foreign film or we play a game. I mean, if you want to do a foreign film, I mean, it's up to you. I mean, you let me do Hereditary, so I mean... Yeah, but you let me do almost everything else. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Shut your face. Anyway. <laughs> so you're going to get a surprise, whether it's going to be a foreign film or a game next week. So we will see what happens. So I want you guys to c- keep asking yourselves... Vote for which one you want, foreign film or game. You know, that reminds me of something I completely forgot about. What? So I haven't really announced these, but some of these podcast episodes that we've been putting out have polls and quizzes on them. So like if you're listening on Spotify and you go down, I think, to like the show notes or the description of the podcast episode, there's like little uh, quizzes and polls that I put there sometimes. Mm. Like especially when we do like... Episodes on certain topics. Does anyone ever get involved with those? Like, for example, I'll give a good example. When we did the Bigfoot episode a while back, Mm -hmm. 
I put a poll attached to it and I said, asking, which ones do you believe in more? It was Bigfoot, aliens, or mermaids. Now, I don't check and see how the polls are doing. We but they're there. Yeah. They're there in case anybody wants to interact and put their two cents into it. They're only up for a limited time, though. Okay. So if you have, like, again, if you're listening to us on any social media platform or any podcasting platform, go check it out and see if you can find those polls because they're there. Yeah, they are there. Anyway, yeah. but I don't know. But other than that, this has been a fun episode of the Abnormal Podcast. Tune to next week for what we're going to do. So until then, this has been the Abbey Normal Podcast. I'm your host, Colin. And I'm Aaliyah. Signing off saying, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. But it's not bad. Aaliyah, 2023. As always, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are currently on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe, or a nice review for our podcast. It helps boost our show positively. You can also follow us on Instagram and now on TikTok.